Hi, and good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are in the world. We're back for another edition of Meet the Author. I'm going to hand it straight over to my co-host, Gary Wong. Take it away, Gary. Thanks, Toro, and uh, welcome, everybody. Um, for me, it's, um, it's coffee time in Vancouver, and I don't know if you're having dinner or lunch or maybe a midnight snack, but thank you for being with us. I'm really pleased for this edition of Meet the Author to have with us Dave Rabbit. Dave has written a book called Harassment and Workplace Violence Investigations, A Practical Guide. I think this, I, I kind of looked at the book and I figured, well, why do we need this book here? So I figured we need to find out from Dave and plus I've asked ask a few other questions here. What's the interest behind this as well? And just to let people know here, this is a bit of a kind of interactive conversation. It's just not between Dave and I. Um, Tamara is gonna help um, monitor things. By all means, please put things into the chat as well and uh, we'll monitor that. And we'll try to bring in your sort of questions as well and maybe your comments here. So welcome, Dave. First question I've got hey, for welcome, Dave. Welcome to you as well. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, glad. So Dave is in, I'm in Vancouver. Dave, you're in Calgary. Calgary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the picture big behind me is, is actually Strasbourg, France. Yes, yeah, that is not Amsterdam. That is Strasbourg in the back. So first question, Dave, just to get her going. What made you decide to write this book? What, what need are you trying to fulfill? Well, uh, there's a lot of things that, that really made me write this book. I, I, I guess, you know, we, years ago, uh, there was some discussion amongst the regulators in Canada, um, the health and safety regulators, that is, that, you know, harassment and bullying, uh, I mean, it's, it's like an epidemic. And they, and they started looking at it saying, well, this is a workplace hazard. And that really was a step change for the people who work in health and safety. Um, you know, identifying that as a workplace hazard and <clears throat> that change happened very quickly uh, all across Canada. Within about a space of about three years, all the major provinces had brought in legislation and, uh, you know, here, here are safety people saying, well, well that's good. I, it's a hazard. I, you know, I, I guess it's psychological, so we can't see it or, you know, feel it, uh, you know, and, and it's difficult to observe and, it's, it's rather nebulous. And, uh, you know, it, the, the other big change was this has traditionally been handled by HR. And I started thinking, well, you know, now, um, you know, we're going to be asking safety people, health and safety people to investigate these, these, these claims or these allegations. And how do we do that? And how do we manage such a hazard? And, and I started, you know, looking around and uh, there's, there's quite a bit of academic literature about the topic, but there's no real guidance at all out there. And uh, I had the misfortune, I guess, or the good fortune, depends how you look at it, to um, be asked to look at an investigation report that had been done by a third party investigator for a large organization. And the investigation report was so awful and so bad, I started just to think, well, what are they basing this on? Like, what kind of a reference do they have? And, and so, you know, I, I, as I started looking into this, like, you know, someone should write a book. And, and me being an author, well, you know, I thought, hey, maybe it should be me. Um, 
and it was quite a, a lot of research. I, I mean, it took a couple of years of, of research and writing to get uh, to the book that, that's out now. Um, the, uh, the topic is, uh, is, is certainly a bit of a hot button issue in terms of psychological safety. And uh, I, I mean, I deal with a lot of organizations as a consultant and uh, organizations are still kind of wrestling with, should this be an HR thing? Should it be a health and safety thing? But um, from my perspective, I see that organizations are very unprepared. Uh, even regulators are having difficulty dealing with how they should be dealing with the, with complaints and how they should be looking into these things. And uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, uh, calls about harassment and bullying are the number one topic that regulators get contacted for. It is the number one thing they respond to. And the top three things, the other two things don't even added together, don't even come close to the number of calls regulators get about bullying and harassment these days. Yeah. Well, last June, I remember you wrote that article in the Canadian Occupational Safety and you titled it Bullying, Harassment, Greatest Workplace Hazard of Our Generation. What really stood out for me was your comment about HR has been doing a poor job of handling these causes cases for years. Without an informed approach, safety professionals will do not much better here. I've got colleagues that are safety professionals and they, they don't even want to go into that space and say, oh no, that's HR is there. I think there's an issue, isn't there, that we're trying to separate things when we really should be realizing they're, they're entangled. We really can separate these things out. And well, I, I think, uh, you know, yeah, sorry, a HR, uh, you know, they're there for personnel support and, and uh, you know, that's, that's pretty much their role. Sometimes they strain to other safety people, strain to other roles as, as generalists. And, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, when I say HR has been doing a terrible job of this for, for a long time, you know, I, I do mean that. Uh, but HR is, is managing a risk, you know, and so in pure risk management, you've got two employees that are at odds over an incident or several incidents. And uh, so, you know, you, you have to do your risk management and say, well, how can I deal with this issue? Uh, you know, I'm being pressured by management to make this go away or resolve this issue. I've got a manager and an employee. They're at odds. The easiest thing for me to do is to package off the person who's complaining. And that's not only what has happened in the past. Mm. The only problem with that is in some provinces now that's illegal. You can't do that. You're violating somebody's rights fundamentally. So, you know, with, with safety, I mean, when's the last time that somebody came out and said, you know, fill in the blank is a workplace hazard. You know, I, I think the last time that happened when we, when we first started talking about nanomaterials, that might be a, a new workplace hazard. But this is a new workplace hazard, not because of the risk, but because of legislation. Suddenly, you know, today, this is now a workplace hazard. And safety professionals are not trained to deal with this. And, and neither is HR, for that matter. And safety professionals are going to go to what they know. What do they know? Well, they know how to do incident investigations. And, and what I discovered very early on is these investigations are not the same as your standard incident investigations. And I, I talked to a lot of safety people and that's what they say. We've got an incident reporting and investigation process and we're going to use that. Well, if you're going to use that, you're going to get into all sorts of 
problems because that doesn't work. And frankly, that is going to uh, cause a lot more angst and a lot more friction between the parties. Um, you know, investigations do share commonalities, but these investigations are entirely different. So, uh, as I said, you know, HR really is not well equipped to deal with the new realities. And uh, because HR, frankly, doesn't read health and safety legislation, they do what they do. And, uh, you know, if you read policies or procedures and companies, you know, what HR has, you know, the, the harassment portfolio, if you will, uh, they are woefully inadequate uh, because they don't understand the whole hazard or risk side of, of this phenomenon. So I'm going to actually Mara, break in here for a minute um, because I also think there's another uh, flip side of the coin here is that these individuals, these professionals have not been trained in order to navigate through the, the web of these type of um, complex um, human relations. They're not social workers, they're not psychiatrists, they don't have that background, but yet in business, we're saying people who aren't trained in dealing with critical issues that can impact people's mental health and create stressors, you should just deal with this like a business risk. I'm gonna crack that open, Rosa and everybody, I hope that you'll join us. Anybody on LinkedIn? Well, I think that's comment? a great point. Oops, sorry, I had to unmute myself. Yeah, um, go ahead, Rosa. Mara, uh, could you say more about that, about making it a business issue? Well, right now, in my experience, okay, when I've seen workplace bullying occurring, it comes down to like, well, we're just going to handle this in a box, that this is an impersonal issue in business and um, you know, push it back to the two players to go deal with it. And if, if you can't deal with it, well, we don't wanna have the uncomfortable conversation. So employee, maybe it would be better if you found another place to work kind of attitude, right? And what people really are needing is, it's like, if you know Star Trek, if anybody's a Star Trek fan, you've got De Deanna Troy, right? And so we need a Deanna Troy. We need somebody who is able to nurture and create open dialogue and conversation with the leader. So the leader can, or with the individual who's being aggressive or an abrasive, so they can identify what behavior and what they're doing that adds to the pie. And then with the person who's being targeted, Right, so they can um, learn also some soft skills to to navigate through. Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, you've hit on something really important, which is that we bring in experts uh, when we don't have the information to deal with a, a physical hazard or uh, control, controlling a risk, but we don't bring in the expert when it comes to the human hazards. So we, we need to be more conscious of that. Do you need to have somebody like that uh, always present in your organization or do you, do you need to just call it in as needed? But I'm not sure how that fits into what Dave was talking about. Dave, how does this conversation fit into- And that's why Dave's here. The communication uh, that you're trying to get out. 
about this? I think it, it's a great point. Uh, you know, um, in my book, I talk about, you know, you have to have a process when someone says, I want to complain. By the time they get to that stage, uh, you know, frankly, the vast majority of them are already traumatized. You're dealing with someone who has some kind of psychological trauma. And so that, com that complaint acceptance process, whoever's doing that needs to be understand that and be able to provide psychological first aid. They need to, you know, so when someone complains, you can't, you know, look back at them and say, what do you want? What the, what's this all about? You know, really it's about, you know, trying to listen and understand what that person's concerns are because, you know, you are dealing with someone who is injured almost all the time. And, and, and as I say, I can say in the book several times, I think, you know, um, if you're a health and safety person and you're dealing with an incident, the person's injured. Uh, okay, fair enough. But when you're dealing with, uh, with one of these kinds of complaints, the injury is still happening. It's still going on right now. And, and so, you know, have, being mindful of that, the, the, the first reaction of the employer should be, how do we make this person safe? What are we doing to protect this person's safety? Because they're coming to you and saying, my workplace is unsafe. I don't feel safe. I'm, I'm being abused or harassed, or I think I'm being bullied. And I'm uncomfortable and I something needs to give and I'm at the end of my rope, so I'm going to complain. Uh, if a company doesn't, it's just like any other incident. If you don't have a process in place to manage that, things are going to go sideways. It's just like any, any injury claim when you're trying to manage the worker's compensation outcome, for instance. It's the same thing. If there is, so, you know, in my experience, uh, in many companies, if you say, you need to go and talk to HR because you've got a problem with this. Um, most employees don't trust HR. Uh, you know, there's various reasons for that. And, and that's not true of all HR departments or all HR people, but generally, you know, I could say most people don't trust politicians. It's the same sort of feel. So, uh, you know, when Tamara is saying, you know, not equipped, yeah, that's true. And, and not trained. Um, you know, safety people aren't trained to investigate these things. HR people aren't trained to, you know, accept complaints and, and start a process. Uh, for the last 30 years, they've been thinking, who needs to get a package here? How can we make this go away? That's expeditious. That manages the problem. And it costs the company money. But in the long run, it, 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 back then it was cheaper. Now it's no longer cheaper. It definitely isn't cheaper. There's a serious financial risk here. And it's also leaving out a key player in the whole process. Like we talk about having processes, right? Well, human resources, what, where people go when something happens is, is part of that. And so we should be including someone in there so that if somebody does identify it, they understand exactly where they need to navigate that person. And, it, and it's most likely not HR or the health and safety person per se, but they should even be able to be trained to identify that and say the, the resource this person needs is over here. And then somebody who has those skill sets to assess at that what's going on comes in. But that's not even um, in organizations often often, right, Dave? Yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm, I, I have some case studies in my book, and one of them is the city of Edmonton. Uh, 
Um, the, some years ago, the chief administrative officer of the city of Edmonton publicly apologized to employees for having a toxic workplace. Um, Human Resources was in charge of, uh, you know, handling harassment or bullying complaints, and and you know basically nothing was going on. Um, so they've actually farmed out uh, that 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 entire process to a third-party contractor, and unfortunately, they did not choose well. And uh, that process was seen as arbitrary and secretive, and certainly not transparent. And uh, it's an interesting case study because it shows how. An organization wants to do the right thing, but struggles to get there. And even to this day, the city of Edmonton continues to have serious problems around, you know, accepting complaints, investigating complaints. I, I think I saw a, a news story where they said that 40% uh, of the complaints were investigated, which I can tell you is, you know, 100% unacceptable. Um, organizations often make the mistake of thinking that they don't have to investigate a complaint because of uh, whatever reason. I can tell you that failing to investigate a complaint gives an employee cause for legal action against the company. So, you know, the company is duty bound to investigate the complaint, to mitigate the hazard, to control the risk, and to protect the safety, the psychological safety of their employees. Um, Brett, uh, there's a couple of comments in the chat. Um, one is um, that we're trying to fix harassment issues by putting a process or framework around it when it's really a cultural issue in the organization. Uh, and I, I, I agree, but, but if you think about culture differently than what we typically look at it, you know, which is from you know, the leadership, the rewards, the, the stories, um, but look at it more uh, the way culture is created, which is in our interactions with each other. Uh, by the time somebody files a complaint, we've totally missed the boat, which was Janice's point. And if you guys want to jump in, jump in, because there were, there were weak signals all along that this was a problem. Uh, but we as uh, safety professionals or managers, uh, they're not trained to see the early signs because you don't have to be a psychologist to say, hey, you look like something's bothering you, what's going on? You, you, don't, have, you don't have to give a certificate for that. And, and the one thing in the research that I've done um, that people say that they really feel they belong when people ask them, how are you, and actually listen to the response. So what, yeah. what do you think about that? <clears throat> you know, I, I think that's, that's very important. That, you know, as I said, you know, there's this hazard that we can't see, we can't touch, you know, and, and it's very nebulous. So uh, some companies just say, well, it's not, we, that doesn't happen here. Uh, which isn't true. Uh, every company, you know, that has more than uh, 30 employees has some bullying and harassment happening. Uh, that's, that's a statistical fact. So mm -hmm. how do you know how bad it is? And, and there's, so there are tools uh, to assess the risk, you know, and, and most of these are, are, are structured surveys that were built by uh, international teams, you know, uh, talking in the book about the, the Copenhagen survey, uh, not so big in the States, but certainly in Europe and Canada. And, uh, you know, there is a data set so you can benchmark in, within your industry. 
Uh, there's aggression questionnaires, leadership aggression questionnaires. Uh, so that helps companies define, you know, how, how, how big is the problem or where is the problem? Because often you will find that, you know, within a, an organization, there are subcultures and certainly there are areas where there might be a problem. And all it really takes is for one toxic manager and they really start, sort of affect those below them, the supervisors. So, you know, how do you identify these people and, and, and get them some assistance? Because what they're doing often, and because we're human beings, we emulate behaviors we think will make us successful. And so if a manager is, you know, behaving in, inappropriately, often they're doing that because their boss doesn't. And, uh, you know, as, as Rosa said, this, this, this is a cultural issue, but, you know, this has really been thrust out, you know, and, and it started really with the Me Too movement, but it's been thrust out into the open and said, look, yeah. this is now against the law. This is a hazard that companies have to control. This is a risk that companies must mitigate. And how do we do that? And that's why I said at the beginning, regulators are even struggling with, you know, how do we deal with this? How do we train our, our regulatory officers to go into a situation and determine if there's a serious problem because uh, this is a hazard, right? So that means if someone's being bullied or harassed, they can exercise their right to refuse unsafe work and have done so. There's been many examples of that. And Dave, I also want to um, pick your brain around this as in my experience, time and time again, when there has been workplace bullying going on, sometimes it even goes to like what a mobbing where the person has influenced other people in the department to then descend on a person and other managers, other people, other senior leaders have seen it and later said, well, I knew something was going on. Where is their accountability? Are they not um, legally responsible to be hopping in? Like, is that a thing? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I guess there's, there's two parts to that. And, and uh, well, I'll talk about the, the mobbing or there's more than one person. I mean, early on, I think somebody said, you know, you've got two people and they don't agree. If you're lucky, that's the case. Often it's, there's many people involved, there's, you know, and, and it's very, very messy. And uh, one of the cases I talk about in the book is, is one where, you know, there, there was no complaint made the manager simply became aware that there was some negative things going on. They were concerned about a certain supervisor's behavior. And so they asked for an investigation and that investigation ended up saying that the negative behavior of the supervisor was affecting the workplace. And you know, that certain, that behavior fit the definition of harassment and bullying. And in that case, the union actually tried to uh, say that, you know, there was no, no bullying investigation and the employer had no right to conduct an investigation. And, and, and in that case, uh, the arbitrator said, no, the employer has a responsibility to conduct an investigation. And, and one of the things I, I, I've always said is the employer cannot unknow something once they know it. Once you see something or somebody tells you something, you can't pretend you don't know that anymore. And, and people don't tell their boss things or tell a manager things or tell HR things because they have an expectation nothing's going to happen. They divulge those things because they have the expectation of action. And that places the onus on the employer to act. 
another thing I wanted to ask you about, Dave, while we're on this line of thinking is, um, in my experiences too, there's been employees who have said, or managers who have said, oh, I knew it was going on, but nobody asked me. HR did not come to me and ask me. And so I'm curious is, is there liability around that? Because as adults, what is our responsibility to help uphold compliance in this area? Well, there's certainly a, a great emphasis on the responsibility of the employer. And, you know, we can talk about the eternal responsibility system. But, you know, I, I talk in the book about how harassment and bullying doesn't just affect the people who are targets of it. People who witness it also are affected uh, because it's, it's really a, a, a toxic kind of behavior. That so um, pe people who witness this are also much more likely to leave the company. Um, you know, and in terms of investigations, I see, I've seen quite a few examples where an investigator, especially an internal investigator, will talk to the person who's complaining, the person's being complained about, and they won't talk to anyone else. And that's a, that's a terrible mistake. And that's why, you know, I, earlier I talked about surveys, you know, you can't go in and interview everyone in a workplace, but you can do a survey to determine if there's a serious problem. You absolutely can do that. And that can allow you to target your investigation much, much more efficiently uh, because these investigations, uh, if you have an external investigator coming to look at uh, an issue or a situation, it is not cheap. Uh, it is complicated. Some organizations are hiring lawyers and lawyers are charging, you know, $900 or $1,500 an hour. Yeah. And, and there, <clears throat> there are other approaches for gathering data as well. Um, Janice, Brett and myself, we're kind of looking at the value of stories, gathering stories. And if I can say that, if the complaint is the event, we're really interested in before the event. Can we actually get uh, weak signal detection, figuring out what's going on before the complaint arises? Because one of the things that's valuable about stories is that we actually get attitudes. We get those, I got a bad feeling about this sort of stuff. So we can be alerted and maybe do something about that. I'm just going to switch a topic here and really kind of get back onto the book. I see that this is a practical guide, Dave, primarily written for the Canadian workplace. What other line, what can line managers and safety professionals in other countries like the US, what can they find valuable in the book? Um, certainly there is value there. Um, I say it's mostly written for the Canadian uh, market because um, the legal cases, the case studies are all Cana Canadian based. Uh, but I've had interest in the book from the US and the UK and Australia, um, you know, because we had kind of have similar legislation with the exception of the US. Um, and, uh, you know, the process, and I always say the methodology for dealing with these issues uh, has to be, you know, outlined and it has to be followed. We have to do things in, in a certain order and in a certain way. So the value there for those people will be, you know, how do you set up interviews? How do you make, how do you initiate contact with those people you want to interview? You know, how do you then analyze the data? How do you resolve where one person's saying it's black, the other person's saying it's white, you know, somebody saying, you know, it was daytime, it was nighttime. Well, you know, one of the big differences here between uh, a harassment and bullying investigation and a, and, a, and a standard health and 
safety investigation. Health and safety investigation, there's an incident, you're investigating it, you know, great, it's pretty straightforward. But in a, a bullying and harassment case, people don't even agree there was an incident. You know, and, and there are absolute precursors to these things. You know, whenever, you know, I've done investigations, often, you know, you'll be talking to people, interviewing people, and they'll say, I knew it. I knew something was going to happen. And it's the same in these cases. You sit down to interview someone, say, you know, I'm conducting uh, an investigation into an allegation of uh, bullying. And, uh, and people are likely to say, oh, it's so-and-so, isn't it? I knew it. And, and it, it often goes like that. And, 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 you know, we can go back to, you know, uh, you know, somebody said, well, no one asked me. No, nobody asked me. Uh, yeah, no, nobody did ask, you know, and, and um, some organizations do, uh, you know, employee satisfaction or lifestyle surveys every couple of years. Uh, that's one of the reasons I chose the city of Edmonton as a, as a case study, because they do one every two years. And uh, <clears throat> despite their best efforts, um, complaints or people identifying themselves as being bullied and harassed within the last year or six months has actually risen uh, as awareness has grown. Uh, so, uh, you know, are you, are you taking the temperature of the organization? You know, we talk about perception surveys in health and safety. Why aren't we doing surveys to try and gauge how, how bad or good our bullying and harassment situation is? How are we managing that risk when we don't even know what it is? We don't know how bad the problem is or how bad it's likely to be unless you're starting to do something proactive. Anybody have experiences where they've had a situation in the organization they worked or maybe they consulted into where they've had things kind of go right and maybe some things that have gone wrong? Anybody like to um, share some experiences? I'm just watching the chat and I understand there's one question raised about what has the pandemic done for us? Has it actually increased or decreased kind of harassment cases here? I recall back in April when things started to kind of go, you now have to work from home. There was this infamous, infamous post from one Wall Street trading firm where the HR manager put out the rules and how to use Zoom. Thou shalt have your zoom on 24 7 always facing and you must always show your face you must tell us when you leave um, that quickly went viral and people started saying isn't that a form of bullying and harassment and that was immediately taken down here but i don't think that was the hr person <clears throat> kind of delivery doing i think it was ignorance just didn't realize that oh my god am i actually bullying people here yeah. Well, I think um, you asked a good question, Gary, if anybody has an experience. And I find that that's difficult to talk about because oftentimes um, there's shame involved with having been bullied or harassed because people assume somehow it's their fault that this is happening. And again, once it gets to the point where somebody files a complaint, I, I don't see any way out of it. I've been, I've been called in as a mediator uh, to try to have two people who were you know, not getting along in the office because they wanted to keep both people. Uh, and uh, you know, they're, they're all good people. 
but by the time it gets to, to that point, there's just been too many uh, injuries. Uh, it would be like, you know, offering somebody oxygen after they've been underwater 10 minutes, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm getting now, pretty good at these analogies. <laughs> now, Brett, uh, Brett had actually put something into the chat. Uh, do you want to come on mic and share a little bit about what you're, you're thinking there? We'd, I'd love to hear more. Yeah, and I, I maybe you should preface my question by saying, Dave, that I have ordered your book and not read it. So I apologize if it's taking this discussion off track. Um, but I was just, I'm curious about, um, you know, framing these sorts like discrimination, harassment as in the context of legality and, and process and how to manage risk versus thinking about it in a more broader kind of cultural way as a risk to maybe culture or cohesion that of course has business impact. And I'm just, I guess my experience and I'm not, you know, working as a consultant in some spaces where we get brought in by an HR team because of these sorts of incidents and because investigations have been done, but behavior hasn't changed to actually understand the culture that's leading to these sorts of incidents happening. And so I'm just Maybe, I don't know if I'm being very, um, very concise, but maybe you could just speak, hopefully you can speak to kind of <laughs> what I'm saying there. Yeah, yeah I mean, you, you make a, a very good point and, uh, you know, this is not just about regulatory compliance. It is not just about managing risk. Um, and, and I do talk in the book about, you know, the failure to, to identify the risk, the failure to plan for the risk, the failure to recognize that the organization itself uh, needs to be, you know, more inclusive. Uh, you know, uh, we, we hear a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion these days, and uh, that goes to psychological safety. You know, is your workplace psychologically safe? And and when you start drawing that out, you're you're not talking about someone's you know response to a hazard you know you're talking about human dignity you're talking about people's basic fundamental human rights you're talking now now the the, the the ball gets bigger and bigger you're talking about labor relations you're talking about wellness at work it really runs into all these things and, and i personally have seen examples where a good company hires a new CEO, they hire a new senior manager, and that person is toxic. And within a couple of years, they have completely destroyed that company as a psychologically safe place to work. Uh, because they've infected others, they brought in other people who they've worked with before. And, uh, you know, we are seeing evidence of, of these things happening um, all around us. Uh, you know, I, I even talk in the book, you know, about some cases, you know, we We've seen in, in the last year, the CEO of McDonald's being sued by his former company uh, when he was let go. The, uh, the chief people officer at McDonald's fired for you know, the same sort of incidents. We've seen uh, Ubisoft cleaning out their, their head office. And we, years ago, we've seen protests by female workers at Google. Uh, I mean, this is really starting to take on some epic proportions. And, and of course, we can't uh, forget and our own governor general is uh, there's an inquiry going on into goings on at Rideau Hall, 
uh, where there's been many allegations of bullying and harassment and, and inappropriate behavior. Uh, it is all around us. And, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, when I talk to groups, you know, I can say, you know, um, it, it's just statistically, you know, 20% of people have been bullied or harassed within the last year in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the more general question is, have you ever been bullied and harassed? And of course, no one's going to put up their hand because there's some stigma. I can tell you that I've been bullied in the workplace, you know, and, and that as a senior manager. <laughs> so, you know, it's everywhere. Uh, it, and, and people often don't want to talk about it. And there's only two kinds of, of cases. There's the case where someone is saying, uh, you know, my supervisor, another coworker called me a name or did something inappropriate. I'm offended. That's a simple case. And then there's the other kind of case. I call them complex cases, but things are so bad, you can hardly believe it. And, and it, when you read the complaint, you can hardly believe that that really happened to someone because it's so awful. You know, and so, you know, in the, these cases these days, the employer has to investigate these things. And, and is not well equipped to do that. But it is a symptom, like any incident, is a symptom of a breakdown in the organization. And not just a breakdown of you know, your safety you know, barriers, a breakdown in your organizational culture and even in, in the organization's moral compass. Uh, because companies that refuse to deal with these things will repeat them and will continue to have a growing problem because these things don't shrink on their own. They take management, they take action. And uh, we see uh, you know, that women are victimized much more than men, but men are also being victimized in the workplace. Um, it is a, as a result of basic human nature. Someone always wants to be in charge. Uh, there was a re really good uh, video I shared on LinkedIn a little while ago about introverts in the workplace because our workplace is built for extroverts. Our workplace is built for people who want to excel, people who will have some aggression and want to get things done. Now that sounds like a leader, but that also describes a bully. And the line is sometimes very fine. Yeah, I know Tanya, you, you're volunteering to share a story. Um, Tanya? Okay, so um, at my former workplace, there was a woman who was well known to be not very, just not somebody you want to associate with. But it's, a, but it's important to understand how she got there. She was, uh, she was the safety culture advocate for years. She um, had, you know, according to her, you know, Canada could have been a leader in this field, um, but uh, internally, there was such enormous pushback to that, that she internalized all that and became, you know, she just lived out this hatred for, you know, 20 years kind of thing, and, and still is, so as far as I know. So, um, I had been on that file, and the manager at the time, the, the manager of that group still, had set up a meeting. So it's important to understand that we were in the equivalent of a technical services organization. There were two parts to the two main parts, there were other parts, but the two main parts of the organization in functional structure, operations and 
technical support. So we were on the technical support side. And so we had, we had booked a meeting to, my boss had booked a meeting to uh, talk about an approach to safety culture with the operations side of the business and invited this woman to this meeting. Um, what I didn't know was that she had printed out my presentation and while I was walking through the presentation, she was turning the page and attacked me right away. This is a lie. You're wrong here. The, you know, very, very vocal. Um, I, I don't remember if she swore or not. She might have. She was known to do that. And, um, and I mean, I, you know, I, I, I know her. I, I, you know, she does have this reputation. So I uh, realized I was trying to give her as much credit, as much, you know, I had to try to salvage this meeting because it was, uh, uh, this was the first time that we were revealing this kind of approach to that, that side of, of the organization. Um, and so it was a pretty, pretty tension filled meeting. I remember leaving the meeting and my boss in the elevator saying, oh man, you did a great job. Like kudos to you, you know, like, uh, you know, good, good on you for, for, you know, for being able to navigate that meeting. My coworker who was at that meeting um, was in tears. Um, she, she was just beyond consolation. She went into his office and said, that was unacceptable. And I, I feel violated because of that meeting. Uh, I can't believe that you let that go on. It is important to realize that my manager A set the meeting and was the only manager in in the in the room. And um, and, and you know she was she was really upset. Um, I the, you know this the the reputation of that meeting got around. I was approached by so many people. Please lodge a formal complaint. Please lodge a complaint. This has gone on for 30 years here. Please, please lodge a formal complaint. So I uh, thought, okay, so I'm taking on the burden of 30 years of you know, harassment in order to lodge this formal complaint. The formal complaint with labor relations was, had like a 12 month time limit from the time that the incident happened. And I'm like, what are you doing? This is not how you deal with this stuff. And they said, oh, people need to process stuff. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't get it. A, in order for me to even get here was enormous. I don't think you realize the barriers that are involved. And she said, what are you talking about? My office is open. And I'm like, I'm not talking about physical barriers. It's why am I carrying 30 years of complaints against this woman who has been known to be harassing and you've never heard of it? Like, you know, th there's something in the system that is not allowing you to even see this. Then, you know, uh, and I thought how this isn't gonna work. Like, you know, the formal complaint thing is just not gonna work. So then um, it turned out that luckily the head of the union was on our floor, knew her, knew, you know, she was very well known on our floor. So we set up a meeting just with her and I and that was the most 
incredibly tense filled meeting I've ever been in, I think, where I had to tell her that, uh, so she said, oh, well, you know, I, I didn't mean for you to take that personally, right? It was not against you. It was, you know, it was against, it was against the whole system. It's not, I, okay, so we're done, right? We're, we're done. And I said, not quite. Um, I need, I need you to hear it from me as opposed to hearing it from someone else. I have lodged a formal complaint against that your behavior at that meeting. So just to be sure, it's not against you as a person, it was against your behavior at that meeting. She got instantly scared and said, do I need a lawyer? And I'm like, what? And you know, and I said, look, you have to understand that when you are pounding the table when you are yelling at people and calling them stupid, this is unacceptable behavior. Unfortunately, it had gone on for so long that she had defined herself by that. People know me, she said. People know that's how I am. And I'm like, but it's unacceptable behavior in the office. You can't do that. And she, she said, well, I can't go to meetings anymore. And I'm like, well, that's your conclusion. So that's my story. Well, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a really powerful, powerful story. story. Yeah. What what it raises for me, Tanya, is that you know, well, I like to just talk. make a, a few oh. comments. Oh, go ahead, Dave. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, sorry. If I could just make a few comments, I think that uh, you, you know you pointed to some really great issues there. You know, organizations um, don't train managers to deal with situations appropriately, I think. And, uh, you know, I always used to use the example, you know, uh, we have the right to refuse unsafe work. Great. If you're a supervisor or a manager and someone walks up to you and says, I'm going to exercise my right to refuse, they have no idea what to do. Because, yeah, there might be a written procedure, but they've never really been walked through and told, this, this is what you need to do. And it's the same thing with, it, with this you know, inappropriate behavior. What do you as a manager have to do? What are your responsibilities when you observe inappropriate behavior? You know, do you call the person out right there? Do you speak to them after? Do you put a stop to the meeting and ask that person to leave? Um, you know, and, and so you know, and it's often, you know, your story is not unique, I'm sorry to say, but it's often people, a lot of people are saying you should complain, this is going on too long, but you know, management needs to be able to detect what we call the weak signals, to detect that there is a problem. And everyone knows, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like almost every major investigation I've ever done, everyone knows there was a problem. Everyone knows things were being ignored. And, and yet, you know, what they, what they ignore is the cost to the organization, the cost to that person or those persons, because I'm sure she had other people she had infected with this, this behavior. Uh, the cost to the organization is great. And, and we are only now beginning, you know, in this new millennium to understand the cost to organizations that this kind of behavior brings. And I, I wanna ask you, Dave, does um, refusal of unsafe work, is that applicable in the office setting though? Whenever an employee believes that or has a reasonable cause to believe that their safety is threatened, so that continuing to do what they're doing is threatened, they can refuse. 
they don't have to demonstrate that it is unsafe. They only have to demonstrate that they believe it's unsafe. And I, I think a lot of managers get hung up on this. I, I worked with quite a few companies and they're talking about people coming back into the office at you know, COVID times, right? And uh, saying, well, people say they could refuse to work. So, well, if you're a good employer, you're communicating with your employees. And if you think they're gonna come walk into your office and say, I refuse to work, it's unsafe here. Well, then, you know, that's a failure on your part. You need to anticipate that and say, I'm not gonna push that person into that corner where they have to exercise that right. You know, and, and it's the same, you know, with, with bullying and harassment. If you don't think it's happening in your organization, you are 100% wrong. The only question is how bad is it? Or how bad is it likely to be? What assistance is the organization providing to those people who have been identified as being aggressive, who have been identified as being at risk of engaging in those behaviors? Uh, and, and, you know, when someone is going to complain, and I mean, I can't stress this enough. I, I mean, my book's more, mostly about investigations, but by the time someone complains, they almost certainly have a psychological injury. They almost certainly are suffering. They almost certainly have reached the very end of their road. They are, they are drowning. They're reaching for a lifeline. And yes. if the organization's response is, the problem is you, never forget those employees always have a recourse and the recourse is the courts. And uh, the courts are not kind to employers on this topic. You know, there are other ways employees can do that. That's where you start getting into work refusals, labor relations complaints, human rights complaints. Uh, these have all happened as a result of bullying and harassment. Yeah. And we continue to see cases in the news and, and in jurisprudence where employees have, you know, even taken on their own union and said, you know, I, this investigation is a, is a piece of garbage. Why did the union accept it? You know, I've talked to some unions and said, look, you're a big union, you know, you're a professional, you're engaged with your members. Uh, when there's a harassment complaint and the employer goes out and hires a third party investigator and there's a, an investigation report, how do you know that investigation report's any good? And, and by and large, they say, well, well, we don't, we don't have the expertise. And, and the problem is neither does that investigator in most cases. Yeah, yeah. You've got a really good section in your book, Dave, on selecting an appropriate qualified investigator. Any quick little things you can share and maybe um, generate some interest in why people should buy your book? Well, sure. Uh, as part of the, uh, the research I did for the book, I got my investigator's license here in Alberta. And, and you know, the, the regulations and... and requirements are different all across Canada, but each province has something. So when you think investigator, private investigator. Uh, so there's a course you have to take in Alberta uh, through the Solicitor General. And uh, the course talks about, you know, investigating theft at a workplace, uh, doing surveillance, you know, on employees, locating missing persons, and even investigating potential criminal activity. And it also talks about health and safety investigations, and it talks about the hierarchy of controls, it talks about hazard, it does not talk about harassment and bullying at all. And so uh, you go through this course and you take an exam, and if you pass the exam, you get an investigator's license, which I got. Now, on the exam, uh, for me, the real telling thing was, there's a question on the exam that says, you know, after taking this course, uh, you know, and, and talked about investigating criminal, potential criminal, uh, you know, uh, events, 
potential theft and new surveillance and health and safety incidents, you are now qualified to investigate these things, true or false. And the correct answer is false because you don't have any experience maybe, you've just taken a course. And so I see a lot of third-party investigators saying, I'm a licensed investigator. Well, in my opinion, that and $2 will get you a copy of Tim Hortons. Mm -hmm. um, what counts is the investigative experience. And, and this is where, you know, I, I see a, a really big divide because unless someone's got about 10 years of investigative experience, investigating these kinds of things is rather difficult. Um, so if you're, you're thinking, uh, and, and, and I'll, I'll say most of these people are, are HR consultants. Um, HR people have no investigative uh, training. They have no investigative experience. Now they can take the course on harassment investigation. Great, wonderful. That doesn't mean that they're qualified and it certainly doesn't mean they're going to do a good job. What it does mean is they will bill you uh, because that's what consultants do. Uh, I think uh, when you're looking to select an investigator, you need to really be careful and you need to involve the parties. Um, the new federal uh, changes, they came out with a new regulation on uh, uh, harassment or workplace violence. And there's a requirement in there. If you're using an external investigator, you have to share the investigator's qualifications with all parties and enter into a consultation because everyone should agree on selecting an investigator. That doesn't mean you have to accept the investigation, but it certainly uh, you know, helps the organization choose wisely uh, because the field of investigating these things is, is entirely unregulated. Anyone can say they're a qualified investigator. Not everyone can say they're a licensed investigator, I'll grant you. But um, I say in my book, I talk about you know, the, what safety people are trained on and required to know, what HR people are trained on and required to know, because these are generally the two parties that deal with these things. And uh, you know, my recommendation is if somebody cannot demonstrate that they've got at least 10 years of investigative experience, and if they cannot walk you through their investigation methodology, how they will conduct an investigation, how they will resolve inconsistencies or where people are saying opposite things, you know, because you won't, don't, everyone says, well, it's a he said, she said. Very, very rarely it does it come down to that. Very rarely. There's always evidence to swing it one way or another. And the findings have to be based on evidence, whether that's evidence collected during interviews or documentary evidence or other kinds of evidence. Next, Dave. We are at the top of the hour. So unless there's a lot of um, questions, comments, um, we can close it off now or carry on for a few more minutes. What do you think? You see a lot out there? Uh, we've had thank, people- I wanna thank Dave, um, I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead, Tamar. What were you gonna say about other people? Um, I was just saying that we've had uh, quite a few people listening and we've got some um, points that people are, are making that we can kind of circle back on. But Jeremiah says, even if it's not regulated, best practices are excellent to make our workplaces better. Mm -hmm. Rosa, what did you want to say? I wanted to thank Dave for bringing this to the forefront. Um, I mean, you, you have caused me to think about things that, that I haven't really thought about because I'm, I'm really focused on helping supervisors and managers realize their impact on employees in the way they talk to them, in the way they interact. And I find that 
most of the time they, they have no idea. Uh, so somebody in the chat wrote that what's harassment to one person is not harassment to another person. And that's part of the problem because I could be getting along really well with someone and then all of a sudden somebody uh, is insulted by the same exact uh, words or, or the same exact actions. So I think we have a lot, a lot of work to do there. And I think your book uh, is a good one in terms of reaching management because you're emphasizing the legal responsibility and the cost. And that seems to be what gets management's attention. So that maybe then people like uh, me and Gary, and I see Tanya here, <laughs> an opening to go in and help them avoid that whole situation. Because once you file a formal complaint, the only thing ahead of you is more suffering, Dave. Filing a formal complaint adds a lot of psychological uh, injury to your experience. So I, I would rather avoid it. And that's how things go on for so long. Yeah, true. Okay, I, again, I think we got to well, respect the is, time. Uh, oh, go ahead, Dave. Um, why don't you say a few things? Because I think we need to close this off. I think tomorrow you're going to um, document okay, all of the stuff that's on the chat, right, on the website. So we'll capture all those really cool things. So go ahead, Dave. Uh, yeah, I just uh, wanted to add to what Rosa said, uh, you know, um, when someone complains, uh, I think the organization has failed. Uh, but realistically, people are, are going to complain. And, you know, I, I often, you know, I talk to senior managers, and they're like, so, so what, you know, I haven't heard anything about this, why should I care? And my answer is always, how much money do you want to spend? And they say, what do you mean? I said, well, how many millions of dollars do you have uh, to spare? Uh, I'm, just, I'm just asking because, um, you know, a lost time claim, you know, in Canada, workers' compensation costs is, you know, around $10,000. But since the vast majority of workers' compensation organizations are accepting psychological injury claims that result from bullying and harassment, uh, those claims have shot up by about four to five hundred percent in the past few years, and those claims are worth somewhere around two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And for the normal organization, with, with how that works out in premiums, is about half a million dollars. Now that's just a, a a short average. So you know, one or two claims can easily run you over a million dollars, and that doesn't even count the other associated stuff that goes with that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, these, this is an expensive risk, very expensive. And so, you know, when, if you're an organization that has two or 300 employees, one claim is going to cost you, you know, somewhere between half a million and a million dollars. And that's whether or not the claim, by the way, is found to be valid or not, because one of the most important ideas is bullying and harassment is in the eyes of the beholder the person who's complaining, that's all that matters, their impressions. If their impressions are reasonable, it doesn't matter what the intent of the other party is. You know, when you investigate these things, at the, in the investigation only states, this is a valid allegation, this is not, or there is no finding. It is up to the organization to determine what they're going to do about that. And, and some organizations do nothing. Uh, of course, they get sued by the person who got harassed because doing nothing is not an option. So, uh, you know, I, I guess at the end of the day, in 
in communicating with companies, they want to know how much it's going to cost. That's just how things are. But, you know, from a human perspective, at the end of the day, this stuff destroys lives. It destroys careers. It destroys people. Uh, and people who are brave enough to complain often pay a very heavy price. Uh, and that is certainly something that we in the health and safety profession should be looking to prevent, to prevent a complaint from happening, to make sure that the workplace is psychologically safe and inclusive for everyone. Right. Thank you, Dave. <clears throat> That's a good ending. Um, Dave, I was going to ask you one final question. If you had three takeaways for the viewers, what would be your three takeaways? It's hard to come up with just three, but uh, you know, I'm, here here we go. I, I think you know this is a risk like any other risk. You need to assess the risk. You need to understand the, the the severity of the risk. You need to understand the exposure out there. So then you can put in place some kind of process to try and reduce the risk. Um, understand that you know uh, in doing investigations in this area these reports that you write will be challenged. And there is a wide audience. Your incident investigation report goes through a few managers, they all sign it off, great. These investigation reports can become exhibits in courts, arbitrations, lawsuits. Lawyers are going may, may look at these and want you to come and, and talk about and answer questions about your report. So, Doing a basic report is and, and getting involved in this, uh, be careful. And you know, if you're in over your head, admit that. Uh, the third takeaway is um, if you're asked to investigate a situation like this where somebody needs an investigation, if it's not a simple case and you don't have any experience, don't do it. Get an external investigator. Make sure you do your homework in selecting an external investigator. I only know of, uh, I think, two other people that do these kinds of investigations that I would say were competent. I know of lots that do them um, because choosing poorly can just compound the problem and really make things take a long time and become very, very unpleasant. So evaluate the risk, understand the wide audience for your report, and when you're getting a third party investigator, be careful, do your homework and involve the stakeholders. I do, have, I do have actually one question for you, Dave, that people have been wondering is, what is the rights of the employee? Can they have a copy of the investigation, the report? Because uh, people have said that they, they try to get their hands on it and they're told, no, it's a private document. So what is the, the reality? Well, uh, some companies say we're going to give you a summary. Some companies say we're not going to give you a copy. Frankly, that is an infringement of your rights. And before the investigation starts, the employee should be saying, what's, what's the process here? Any good investigator will explain the process. So in some cases, um, companies will have their legal firm or their legal representation hire an investigator. So that becomes a privileged document. I don't think that's very transparent, uh, you know, but they can do what they want. But unless it, that is being done through a legal channel where it is, you know, a privileged information, the freedom of information uh, legislation across this country allows any employee 
to request a copy of any document that concerns them. And this most certainly will concern you. That doesn't mean the employer is going to give you a copy. If you have a union, they can advocate for you. If you don't have a union, you can complain to the Privacy Commission. If you really want to, you can take them to court, but uh, you are entitled to a copy of that report. And in my book, I say companies gain nothing by withholding the report except bad faith. Why would someone participate in an investigation when they know they're not going to get a copy of that report? It is your right to get a copy. It is your right to challenge the findings of that report. The, those are fundamental rights, uh, both as an employee and as a human being. Well, thanks. That's, I think we should end on that note to respect uh, people's time. I think there are some people that still go to work, right? <laughs> so um, thanks again, work. Dave. <laughs> this has been fun, right? <laughs> so, so thanks, Dave, for being on with it us. Went by here. very quickly. Yeah, yes, so um, good luck in the book and uh, we'll stay in touch for sure. And uh, we'll keep track and kind of see um, how things are going to carry on with this um, really, really important topic here. Okay, Tamara, any closing thoughts before we shut her down? I'm all good on this side. I will just want to say thank you so much, uh, Dave, for coming and joining us and sharing this information. And I do hope you come back. Be happy to. Okay, thanks everyone for being thanks, on the call on Zoom and on LinkedIn and on Facebook today. And we'll look, see, look forward to seeing you next month. Thanks, Gary <laughs> and Tamara. Yeah. <laughs>